Hi, Tim. Thanks for sitting down with me. It's our first podcast recording of the two of us in 2024. It's good to be with you, Andrew. The holidays were busy. I had a uh, a nice round of the flu. When it's made its way through my family, I haven't had the flu flu in years, and it laid me out flat. I uh, Zero out of 10, do not recommend. <laughs> not a good time. Although, honestly, I think I just needed it. I needed a break from the frantic activity. So as much as I felt lousy and didn't eat for four and a half days, I needed that reset and it was good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but my kids were bummed to not get to go back to new york and see their cousins and so you had planned to do that we had planned to travel and mm-hmm. we initially i got sick and we pushed our travel plans two days back and then uh-huh. the next person got sick we pushed the travel plans back one more day and then the next person got sick and we just canceled everything just just bail out so uh listeners may or may not know tim has done a multi-part series on events happening at 10th presbyterian church in philadelphia around Dr. Liam Gallagher, and it brought to mind to me uh, a different but in some ways, in my mind, related case of a Baptist pastor named Bubba Copeland who committed suicide um, after being exposed for having an online persona of a transgender woman writing erotica, and he was both a pastor and a mayor of a small town. And doing it with his wife. Yes, it was not hidden from her. She was aware. Mm -hmm. And those two cases are structurally very different in terms of the churches they fit into. 10th Presbyterian is one of the oldest, um, one of the oldest individual churches in the country, I believe. Most historic PCA church in the country. C. Everett Coop was there. Donald Gray Barnhouse, Jim Boyce, Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. So it is without a doubt the most respected Presbyterian church in the country. And myself not being a Presbyterian, that history and the history of the PCA and the history of the men who um, held the pulpit there and preached there is largely lost on me. It doesn't mm-hmm. really connect to mm-hmm. experience or history that I have a hook to hang things on. And and so for me, as a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist, I look at the situation at 10th Pres with a little bit of confusion because I don't really understand Mm -hmm. what the governmental and structural levers are there in terms of how those kinds of situations can or should be handled. You know, what recourse does a congregation have? What options does a board of elders have in, in PCA BCO at, at what point does the presbytery have both either the ability to, or the obligation to intervene and with what specific tools, who has standing to take certain actions. Many of those things are, are generally opaque to me, and I know you know them and understand them. And I would love to know more now that Liam Gallagher has resigned, quit, left the pulpit. Um, what are the actual process steps that ought to happen in a case like that? Mm-hmm. Allow me to give a little history, because I'm sure that one of the reasons those that 10-part series, nobody says anything about the series, and most of the people that generally read Warhorn and are a part of our podcast are not people who identify themselves with uh, the Presbyterian Church. 
certainly not with historic Presbyterianism, mm-hmm. and that is my background. That's where I was ordained. And so it's hard for them to understand. So let me just make a couple comments about why this matters to me. My father grew up at that church. So my dad was in Philadelphia, and that was his church. And the man who was the pastor then was a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And Donald Gray Barnhouse was the man who started the magazine named Eternity that my dad wrote for for quarter century. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a real leader for um, racial respect for blacks back in the 50s before anybody else was doing it. He asked my dad to write a long article in uh, in Eternity magazine before dad was ever a columnist. Uh, when dad was a boy, he asked him to come onto his radio show and when he was leaving church that morning to have a Bible study prepared and come on his radio show in the afternoon and be prepared to discuss a certain text. And so growing up, 10th Presbyterian Church, and we lived in Havertown for years uh, when I was a boy, and 10th Presbyterian Church was the DNA of our family. And that was long before Jim Boyce. Jim Boyce came after Barnhouse, um, and then I've had family members who have been members of uh, 10th Pres, very close friends. Uh, Kenton Barb Hughes went there for a time when he went out to uh, be a professor, an adjunct, or I'm not sure if he's adjunct or not, but for a couple of years he was teaching homiletics and pastoral theology there. And so the family connections with 10th Pres are very, very deep. I've also been doing a series on Wheaton, and it's uh, denunciation of J. Oliver Buswell. Well, J. Oliver Buswell and uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse were both essentially early evangelicals out of fundamentalism, and they ran in the same circles, okay? Machen, Barnhouse, Buswell, these are the names of my father's coming of age as a student at Wheaton. I tell you all that because both the denunciation by Wheaton, by Phil Reichen at Wheaton, mm-hmm. of J. Oliver Buswell, a former president of Wheaton, and the absolute um, deception of 10th Presbyterian Session, which started with one of their well-known staff members named Paul Jones, who uh, was the choir director. He also taught at Karen College or Karen University, I guess they call it. Nobody calls themselves a college now. This was back when Phil Reichen was the senior pastor there. uh, Jim Boyce had just died of cancer. Mm -hmm. Found out that the guy he went around the country with uh, publishing and singing a new set of hymns that he and Paul Jones wrote together came out that Jones was uh, abusing uh, naked young men. Okay, I'll leave it at that. And the elders at 10th just covered it up. They absolutely covered it up with Phil leading them. Um, And so that was my introduction to the corruption that presided over 10th Prez and its elders board. And I took it personally, and I got involved in it back in 2014 because, as it turned out, I knew one of the principal victims of Paul Jones. And so our church put together a commission 
And a commission in Presbyterian parlance is not a committee. A commission has much more authority because a commission can act in behalf of the uh, of the judicatory, of the board, of the of the people that appoint it. It has their authority. That's the definition of a commission. So our elders board put together a commission, and there were uh, three pastors on the commission, two PCA. There were two attorneys, one who specialized in uh, prosecuting. Uh, the cover-up of sexual abuse by churches. I think he won a $50 million judgment against the Roman Catholic Church on the East Coast. And then a number of elders. And we had two attorneys there, three pastors, two victims. And we wrestled 10th session, forcing them to meet with us. And that happened on March 14th or 15th, 2014. Now, I tell you that because what followed was three years of work. And every single bit of that work was trying to keep 10th session from continuing to lie to its congregation. And Liam was the pastor at the time. I worked very, very closely with Liam. I mean, (laughs) I won't go into it. So we went out and met with him. But then for two or three years, we just kept having them lie to the congregation. I went back recently and I counted up the number of documents on my computer. And I have, um, I think, 100 documents and 200 emails from that work from January of 2014, the next couple of years. And it was, to say that it was disgusting to me, and to all of us on the commission, doesn't even begin to address it. Because no matter what we did, we realized that the only way we were going to get the elders of 10th to be truthful was threatening them with public exposure. And we had the permission of the victim that we were working with to go ahead and publish everything, including his name. But we didn't want to do it. And from the very beginning, I communicated with the men in Philly, including the presbytery, that we did not want this going public. What we wanted was for presbytery to rebuke and censure the elders of 10th. And I said to them, if you do that, that will be a warning that goes across the denomination. And that's a good way to handle it, to show yourself stand-up men who follow the Book of Church order and do what is required in this situation. It took two or three years before they were willing to do it. We had to fight and fight and fight. Finally, they did it. But they did it in a terrible way. And those documents are public. Uh, (laughs) Good luck trying to find them. But they're censure of 10th. Now, I tell you all that so that when in November of this last year, all of a sudden this 200-page report comes out from the Godly response to abuse and whatever it is, it's an acronym, GRACE. This report came out this last year, 2023, That is another eight years after they finally were wrestled into admitting what they had done with Paul Jones, hiding of it. Well, I read through the Grace Report, skimmed it, and immediately I realized the Grace Report wasn't honest or truthful. It exposed a humongous amount 
of abandonment of responsibility by the officers of 10th, by the pastors of 10th, but it was mincing. And by that, I mean, you know, they, they did not name the people who had covered up the sins at 10th. Mm-hmm. So they're writing this report, and they're clearly cutting slack to the people who were the worst abusers. Now, people are going to wonder when I say that, they're going to say, well, how could they be the worst abusers? You, you know, you're talking about Paul Jones. Well, listen, my response is Paul Jones wasn't. You ready for this? Paul Jones wasn't bad. Now, I know people are going to freak out at me saying that, but the reason I'm saying that is, you know how Jesus says the poor you will always have with you, incest you always have with you, adultery you always have with you, fornication you always, pornography you always have with you, sodomy you always have with you, cross-dressing you always have with you. All these sins are in Scripture. I don't so much condemn the men that fall as King David did. What I cannot abide is pastors and elders who, instead of loving those men and disciplining them, hide them and hide their sins because it's damnable. The whole point of being an elder and a pastor or a presbytery is to guard the sheep. And when the sheep are abused by their pastors and elders, when sins are hidden, when incest is hidden, when naked beatings are hidden, when these things are hidden by the very men who have been set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer and ordained to protect the sheep, They're abandoning the predator because he can't repent, because he's given, you know, he's coddled. Well, nobody repents when they're coddled. And then all the victims have to live in secrecy because they're never allowed to grieve because grieving is like, stop your crying. You know, nothing happened to you. And so I said to the victim that we worked with, I said, you know, I don't so much have a problem with what Paul Jones did to you. What I really, really get angry over is that the pastor and elders at 10th did not deal with the situation and hit it. So the Grace Report comes out. Yes. We've been involved, you know, 10 years earlier. No. Eight years earlier. Yeah, I guess eight. It happened, what? 23 years earlier, I look at it and I realize one of the things they say in the report is they say, we talked to all the victims of Paul Jones and only one of them was willing to talk to him. So I immediately called this victim. I said, did they contact you? He said, no. And I said, well, they say they contacted all the victims and only one would talk to me. He said, they never contacted me. And of course, this is the man that would have talked to them and would have made it free for them to use him in any way. And so it was very obvious to me that this was a a cosseted report, that this report... Well, then I began to look into the finances of Grace, and I realized that Grace claims it's independent, but a year or two ago, their IRS 990 forms show that their their total income was a million, and of that million, I think only two or three hundred of it was uh, donations. The rest of it is the charges. Their their 
work for fee with these churches. And yesterday I found out it was said at one of the parish meetings of 10th Pres, the elders are going around trying to manage the church, and they found out that uh, they they said that they had paid around $200,000 to Grace to do this thing, to do this report. Let's get back to polity, because this is a Presbyterian church. At the same time as I've been working on 10th Pres, I've been working with an independent Reformed Baptist church. And in this independent Reformed Baptist church, there was a man who multiple times told multiple individuals in the church, he's single, that he that that he's a pedophile. And, and by a pedophile, I mean somebody who desires sex with children, okay? And it doesn't mean that he has done it, but he would confess that. He would say, look, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be with them. I shouldn't this, that, and the other, because I, you know, I'm lusting after them. Okay. And the pastors refused to inform the families of the church that this man was in their midst. So here you have a church that's independent, that has elders, and that covers it up. And so I was working with one of the elders for quite a while, and then I was called into a conference call with all three of the elders, pastors of the church, and several other Christian leaders. And honestly, you say, I don't know anything about Presbyterian governance, policies, constitutions, rules of order, all that stuff. You know, it really doesn't matter. It plays out exactly the same. Both all churches today, all Christian organizations will do anything they can to cover up sin, and especially sexual sin, and especially when it's committed by either somebody they're friends with or by a leader. When you bring up Bubba, you you mentioned we're going to talk about it, so I went online and read about him because I had read about him when it first happened, but I, I I forgot. And you know what's interesting about him is that afterwards everybody faulted the guys that exposed it. Everybody condemned the people that exposed it. And Mary Lee said to me earlier today, "No, it was my brother David. That's who it was." He said to me, Tim. The only sin left in the evangelical reformed world is the sin of, how did he put it? He said uh, the sin of, well, what he meant was the sin of telling the truth. The sin of saying anybody's lying. That's all that we have is a sin in the reformed world today. And so what you read about is if anybody says anything about incest, about rape, about anything. Everybody says, you're a liar. You don't know that. That's just made up, you know. And the fact is, I don't know if you know this, but we, the elders and pastors of Trinity Reformed Church here in Bloomington, we spent decades dealing with people who were sexually abused, who were raped, who were men and women. My first one in Bloomington was actually a man who was being raped by his older brother in the home that he lived in. It was a Christian home. And when you deal with these kinds of things, always run into the pastors, the elders. They just are furious that you want them to hold the person in their church accountable. They just 
They're livid. And yet the victim, it's required for the healing of the victim. And if we really believe in repentance... It's required there too. It's required there too. When you bring up the issue of Presbyterian polity, what I said to the elder, because immediately when we first started, when I first started trying to help him, immediately he says, well, we don't have the same polity. We're independent and we're congregational. Well, then they ended up excommunicating the man for, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but they excommunicated him. And when they excommunicated him, I said to him, you have to tell the congregation why what on earth has been going on with him. You can't have them vote on an excommunication where you don't tell them about this sin. But no, what they did was they came up with something that had nothing to do with anything that would scare the mothers. You follow what I'm saying? And they kept it under wraps. For years, I kept saying to them, guys, listen. You've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours trying to manage this situation. Just tell the truth. Tell the truth. Just tell the truth. And I said to my friend who was the elder, the interesting thing about what you're going through, he said, you know, I'm not congregational or Baptist, but can I point out that you're not following your polity? Because your polity requires you to have your congregation vote on the discipline. And yet you men are withholding the critical information about that discipline. And so that's why I say it really does not matter whether you're Episcopal, whether you're Congregational, Baptist, Presbyterian, you have a book of church order. The church no longer believes in sin. The church believes in secrecy. The church believes in keeping victims in bondage of secrecy. The church believes that predators can't be told to repent. The church believes that no predators will repent. And so I just want to demystify Presbyterian polity. Now, one other thing, and then we can talk. <laughs> I had to give the history of no, the thing. That was, that was great. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. In the Book of Church Order, the Rules of Discipline, it says this. It says, if anyone knows a minister to be guilty of a private offense, he should warn him in private. But if the offense be persisted in or become public, he should bring the case to the attention of some other minister of the presbytery. Okay. Now, Andrew, let me ask you, do you understand that? I think I do. <laughs> it's not complicated. No. We don't need a divining rod. We don't need, what were those glasses, Urim and Thummim, that Joseph Smith used? You know, we don't need to study the history of this sort of entry into typical Presbyterian Church of Order books across the centuries. It's yes. clear. And neither 10th nor the men that knew what was going on, nor the presbytery have done what it says should. In other words, it's incumbent on them. It's their responsibility. And to this day, we're at two months now where Liam has absented himself from his church. He has not been in the pulpit, and he got his elders to read a bald-faced lie to the congregation the first Sunday he didn't preach. 
And it was, he was saying, oh, you know, I got a citation for some minor infraction and, you know, and then it came out that there was a woman with him. They were backseat of the car. I mean, eventually the actual citations written by the officer in the park in Lancaster came out and you read the citations. It's And how it has gotten to the point where today, as of today, they have two committees of presbytery working on it. Those committees were appointed like seven weeks ago. Liam has never appeared again to fulfill his responsibility. He has not been removed by the congregation by vote, which is what has to happen. The congregation has to vote or the presbytery has to defrock him. He See, can't just no, quit. No, no, he can't quit. Because quitting is what we in Presbyterian lingo call contumacy. It's contumacy and it being contumacious. But nobody wants to deal with Liam Gallagher, who was, you know, the the shining star of, you know, all the famous uh, reform dudes, you know, hung hangs with Carl Truman and writes for everybody can't believe that they have to actually say no to Liam. And so they haven't. I know why they've done what they've done. And the reason is that most cases of discipline that proceed to formal discipline in the Presbyterian Church end up getting decided on the basis of contumacy because most people thumb their nose at the session or at the presbytery and refuse to show up for their trial and refuse to confess. Philadelphia Presbytery has its hands full. It's just a tiny little presbytery of tiny little churches. And, of course, 10th Pres is the whale. Stated clerk of the presbytery is, is at 10th Pres. I think... Now, the moderator currently is not. Um, the treasurer of Presbytery is a tenth. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to avoid formal process because they know that Liam is, uh, I can't, can't even imagine Liam admitting he's lied and lied and lied to everyone, including the, his deaconess that he had his adulterous relationship with and people might say well you can't prove he had an adulterous relationship and i say well let me tell you something if i catch my son who is married in a car an hour hour and a half away from where he and she work in the back seat i'm going to be suspicious no i'm not even going to be suspicious i'm just going to say you are an adulterer is this so stupid today that we think that we have to have a picture of the dirty deed and a guy swearing he took the picture? And so I come back to what I said to you at the very beginning, the refusal to obey the book of church order immediately and to announce to the congregation that charges have been filed and are in process is a worse sin than what Liam Gallagher is guilty of. Because what it says to everybody is there are no consequences. And if they are, they'll be delayed so long and they'll be appealed so long and you'll get away with it. And with Bubba, you know, you have a guy who killed himself. And, you know, you don't want a man to do that. You want him to repent. Yeah. And he was humiliated. But it's like in the PCA, there's no shame. None, none, none. No shame. Just precious treatment. For the second famous man, the first one being Phil Riken and now Liam Gallagher. And, you know, they're going to end up having to 
take his name off the library, something? I, I don't even know. But if they end up filing charges, finally, the delay is more important than them filing charges. Because everybody knows why it's been delayed for two months. He's getting precious treatment. They don't want to face him down. Nobody wants to admit that the senior minister of 10th Prez carried on for many years an adulterous relationship with one of his church officers, which is what a deaconess is. I've tried to get in touch with Liam. He won't respond to me. It's just so simple. When you see sin, you love the people. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the truth. And we just assume that the truth must be pretty. No, love rejoices in truths that are condemning and truths that are liberating. And I just wish people would learn that if you love the sinner, gently you deal with him and get him to self-accuse, you know? But now it's too late. Everybody knows that they've given special treatment to Liam as they gave it to Paul Jones, covering it up now just as Phil Reich and his elders did 20 years ago. So that's my monologue about the whole thing. Today, I sent out an email to men that I've been working with, and I said that I've written my last thing on 10th Press. I mean, I suppose it's possible that at some point in the future, something disastrous could happen and I could comment again, but I'm done writing about this. Everybody knows and has known for weeks and weeks and weeks what they should do. But instead, what they're doing is having all these parish meetings with their congregation and, you know, finding out what their congregation thinks. And all that is, is trying to see what will play in Peoria, you know, that expression of journalism. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a waste of time. One man, only one, would have had to stand up and file charges and everything would have been purified. And the book of church order is so simple and so clear. Who has standing to file those charges? Anybody in the presbytery. But not a congregant. It has to be a presbytery member. No, a congregant can file charges to presbytery. And, you know, I have I have outlined that. Um, PCA Book of Church Order actually has a provision for any report of a scandal. Mm-hmm. And the PCA churches and presbyteries have to receive those reports and act on them, regardless of whether somebody is even a member. I could send charges to 10th Pres, or not to 10th Pres, to the Presbytery, and I have now left the PCA, and they would have to deal with them, because that's what the poke of church order requires. But, but my point is, it is not my responsibility. It's not mine. It is the direct responsibility of the people in that presbytery. And so, yes, if I knew a secret about a man and I wanted the people at the presbytery to deal with that man, yeah, I would contact them because it's my responsibility because I'm the one that knows, right, about the man. But this is not that case. This has been publicized. It's like, oh, please, can we, the church, let judgment begin with us? Who cares about Christian nationalism? When this is the stuff going on in churches around the country, and people will say, well, it's not going on in my church. And I'll just say, oh, yes, it is. Because it's in Scripture. So there's a couple different directions to go from here. I'm going to take two of them in order. The first one is, if a man aspires to church office, 
to be a deacon, to be an elder, to be a pastor, to be in a presbytery, or to be on the session of an independent Baptist church. Mm-hmm. He has to have a bit of a pit bull in him. He has to be willing. You, you can't take on that responsibility unless you've counted the cost. Well, but to say count the cost is very different from saying a bit of a pit bull. Because if you think of the years you and I have had together, yes, and we've had many disagreements. Yes, always gently. Well, not, <laughs> not always. No, often not. Not always gently. But I keep coming back and saying, these men who refuse to do what their call is as pastors and elders have no love. And I know that sounds crazy because people in their church, oh, he's so loving to me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. But love without truth is flattery. I'm not denying that they have a very good way of assuring you that you've connected with them and they have affection for you. But love is proven by discipline. This is what Hebrews teaches us about discipline, that the son that isn't disciplined is a bastard. And so churches around the country have pastors who have no sheep, just bastards, bastard children, because they won't discipline them. They won't say no to them. They won't speak to them about their sins, small or large. About the only thing that pastors today will speak to people about sin is pornography. And that one's a good one because generally they only talk to men about it. And of course, you know, the third rail for pastors is ever getting any woman, especially an elder's wife, angry at them. And so pastors want to stick away from women. They don't want I mean, they want to use women to get the work of the church done. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to anything that's difficult, they never want to anger the women. And, of course, the women want all sexual abuse covered up unless they love a victim, unless they love a victim. And then they're determined that it be brought into the light because they know that's what heals the victim. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't say a pit bull. What I would say is fear of God. They have to have some modicum of the fear of God so that they know they're answerable to God for the condition of their flock. I'm teaching a pastor's, the second semester of pastoral theology, and this one is pastoral care. And the relentless theme of the class is the responsibility of a shepherd for the condition of his sheep. It's such a basic theme in Scripture. Shepherds, sheep. And Jesus, it's so clear he's motivated to do his work of ministry because he looks out on the sheep, they're harassed and helpless. That's what all those poor sheep are at 10th Presno. They're harassed and helpless. They have faces covered in shame. Their neighbors are laughing at them. Everybody's laughing at them. Oh, yeah, William Gallagher, you know. And it could have been brought to an end quickly by giving Liam the dignity of charges. 
And they could have announced to all the people, this is terrible, and we have filed charges in judicial process. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. But men do fall, don't they? And then preach on David. Preach Psalm 51. Hold out to Liam and everybody. And so, no, I would not say that you have to be a bit of a pit bull. I would say you have to have faith in discipline. And I've often said to the elders of your church when I was still there, You'll have a nasty situation. It will consume countless hours. It's in come up in the elders' meeting. And you can feel everybody sitting there saying inside themselves, I don't want to go to formal discipline about this. If we go to formal discipline about this, what's going to happen is, you know, a bunch of people in the church are going to get angry and we'll lose some people. And the person that we file charges against, it's not going to do any good. They're not going to repent. You know, this is always what elders and presbyteries think about discipline. Yeah. And I would stop the meeting and I say, now, listen, we're all thinking that it won't do any good. But the fact is, we have to remind ourselves how often in this church it has women and men have repented. And number two, you have to check yourself on the issue of discipline, because you know God has ordained discipline for the church. And so do you believe that the tool that God has ordained will be blessed with his power and the work of the Spirit? If we're going to say that we know better than God and that he shouldn't have given us the tool, let's just say it. Just lie down on the couch and let's talk about your feelings. Let's shut down session meetings. Let's get rid of the office of elder and pastor, you know, and let's just smoke dope. Sounds emergent. Well. But my point in the bringing up the bit of a (laughs) pitbull is not... That an elder needs to be pugnacious yeah, because scripture okay. specifically warns us he's not to be, yeah. not to be quarrelsome. Okay. But that when you bite hold of something and you know you have to hold on, yeah. you yeah. don't get shaken off easily. <laughs> and so that that ability of a man to see something wrong and clamp down on it yeah. and not be talked out of it, yeah. not be gaslit not be cajoled, yeah. not be, you know, um, quid pro quo out of it, but just he's got his jaw on that and he's not going to let go of it. Something's going to have to be done about it. Certainly, I think that oh is, and that's motivated by the fear of God. You don't, if it's motivated by anything else, then it's just pugnaciousness. Yeah. You're talking about he has to be willing to clamp down and hold on. All right. Often in marriage counseling, I will quote an Ethiopian proverb. Sometimes it has application to the wife and sometimes to the husband. And the proverb is, if you catch a tiger by the tail, hold on. One of the major problems in the Reformed Church today is that men do not talk to their wives about the work they're doing at church. Now you're wondering, what on earth does that have to do with what you just said? Who's the tiger in this story? Well, listen, when it comes to abuse, how many pastors would handle it right if their wife didn't have her teeth sunk into his rear end and they would not let go? My wife has loved and loved and loved women and helped them who have been abused. Horrible things. 
And honestly, I don't know. I don't know if I wouldn't have a string of failures like tense elders. If I didn't have a wife who was zealous to see the healing of people who are adults and who have never been able to talk. So having Mary Lee as a wife, number one, but number two, I love her and trust her. I don't think my male ego needs to keep her out of church business. Mm -hmm. And that's what all these guys do. They all think, well, it's church business. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk to my wife about it. I want to protect her from it. But of course, it's not that they want to protect her from it. It's what they want to protect themselves from her having opinions when they have covered it up. Do Do you see what I'm saying? I do. So I would say you're right. You have to have a tenacity pit bull tenacity but in an awful lot of cases that i know pastors the tenacity and the pit bullishness is actually the wife that the husband listens to and the most successful pastors are pastors who work arm in arm with their other half in the work of ministry and i'm not trying to turn anything feminist priscilla was with aquila in confronting apollos at areas that he was wrong Scripture commends it. So ironically, I was sitting here laughing because I just kept thinking about wives. I mean, they are such a help. And what was that guy's name? Real famous. That was Ravi Zacharias. Yeah, Ravi Zacharias. When I heard about that, I looked at Mary Lee and I said, where was his wife? Gordon McDonald, where was Gail? You can go through list after list of these men. What on earth are the wives of the elders at Tenth and of the pastors of Philly Presbytery saying to their husbands? You know, so I think part of the issue is that God gives you the wife he gives you when you lack faith and strength and the fear of God. And sometimes the fear of your wife. It is what awakens the fear of God. In it's you. a it's a bracing tonic. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a bracing tonic. Oh my! Goodness. Some tonics are more bracing than yeah. others. So, uh, pivoting off that point, when I was reading the news articles shortly after the Bubba Copeland case broke, and his public statements immediately following were essentially along the lines of, uh, "I didn't hurt anybody, or didn't mean to hurt anybody, and this was just a private, private, private thing." between me and my wife and my immediate thought was man that wife didn't help him at all Mm -hmm. not at all and whatever the motivations there were whatever the self-justification whatever the plausible explanation is the the outcome is horrible it's horrible for him it's horrible for her it's horrible for their family for their church it's horrible for their town it's horrible for the for the glory of jesus it's just horrible and i don't want my wife to put our relationship our marriage above the truth Mm -hmm. I don't want her to be so desperate to hang on to that 
that she won't pull me back from the brink of something that she knows I'm teetering on. Mm-hmm. I need, I need her to do mm-hmm. that. The most painful things we've ever been involved with are having to confront the wife of a man who has raped and molested his children and grandchildren. And we've done this multiple times. It's horrible. Because they always deny they knew anything. Well, then when you tell them what their daughter or their granddaughter said, then they're caught between their husband and their the child. And if you look them in the eyes and don't blink, then they start sobbing. It always comes out that they knew. And so I've had to put myself in the positions of those mothers because, again, I'm not going to say that those mothers are worse than their husbands. Mm -hmm. But if I said that the elders of 10th covering up serious sexual sin is worse than the actual sinner, you understand why I'm saying that. I mean, the whole reason you have an elders board or a presbytery is so that the strength of numbers and the vows you've taken force you as a group to not allow an individual man to be unfaithful because we all know individual men can be unfaithful. We are all weak in many ways yeah, and many yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you, I've had to put myself in the position of these, of these, uh, of these, of these women. And you know, Andrew, it is so difficult for wives because probably prior to the rape, a lot of them were refusing to have sex with their husbands. Some of them were abused when they were girls and sex is dirty to them and they can't function sexually. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of relieved that their husband found an outlet that didn't involve them having to feel filthy and getting headaches and having you know, physical problems, okay? Then you look at the issue of whether or not the marriage could survive her confronting him. You look at the issue of support. A lot of these women were stay-at-home mothers. Their entire life is dependent on their husband. Um, then you deal with, you know, one of these situations where this this stand-up man, he had his brother or his brother-in-law, I can't remember which it was, but they molested his children and he and his wife and family came over to sit down and talk to us from another large city in the Midwest. And when they came over, what was clear was that he was going to be ostracized by his entire family if he brought it into the open. And so the pressures brought against wives helping their husbands, bringing things into the open, repenting, confessing. The pressures are extraordinarily intense. They are. Yeah. And yet, what I have seen is that when a church becomes known for lovingly dealing with the most awful sins, and you know what ones we've dealt with in our church, and we've dealt with them publicly because there were reasons that some of them had to be dealt with publicly. You just could not have it private. I won't go into it, but you you should think social media, okay? And we've gotten to the point, we got to the point 
in our church where people began to believe that you could repent. You know what I'm saying? And that was helpful so that some of those mothers ended up leaving their former church and coming to our church and joining it because they realized that we loved them. And that's the thing I keep coming back to is, do we really love sinners? Jesus didn't hide the woman at the well. He didn't hide her sin. The way he showed that he loved her was he brought it into the open. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when we bring sins into the open, it's so obvious to the sinner that we love them and that we have hope for their repentance. Yep. Well, certainly in an ultimate sense, when Scripture says that the things that are hidden will be shouted from the rooftops and that we'll have to answer for every word. Um, there is no incognito mode in eternity. There is no, uh, you can't bleach bit the servers mm -hmm. and get rid of the info. I think we actually do have in many ways um, unique opportunities to be more transparent by default. Uh, I'm, I am deeply opposed to Big Brother. I do not want the government mm -hmm. deigning to observe all my choices and decisions and then guiding me uh, either explicitly or implicitly in the, toward the directions it thinks I should go. But I think there is incredible value and health in having other people be able to audit your life. <laughs> and I think if you asked anyone would you like to turn back the clock 10 years and look at a 48-hour window of what you browsed for on the internet? Even if there's nothing wicked in there, there's going to be so much frivolous waste and stupidity. And the fact that we just burn up hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. We burn up years and years. Um, it's really sobering to think that we give our strength and our time to these things that are completely fruitless. I'm an intensely curious person. Joked about yeah, that before. Yeah. I'm intense and curious. Yeah. Um, and intensely curious. <laughs> and I can, I can find almost anything interesting for a while, but I could do nothing but consume information for the rest of my life and it would be utterly fruitless i would have improved nothing built nothing not discipled my children not loved my wife but i could know all kinds of information all kinds of random things and so on the topic of privacy i I see its incredible utility. Privacy is a gift from God. Privacy is not incidental. And it, privacy is not synonymous with fig leaves. By the fig leaves, I'm referring to Adam and Eve in the garden. It wasn't that privacy was created as a countermeasure to sin. The scriptures are repeatedly, they commend privacy. Proverbs is full of it. Like, you have your wife, 
Why should your streams of water be out in the street for everyone? Enjoy your wife in private. And that privacy is necessary. But there's another kind of privacy of secret sins and hidden thoughts. Um, when Proverbs talks about keeping something like a morsel under your tongue and savoring it, it's not talking about medicine it's not talking about penicillin that you're, you know, sucking on that makes you well. It's talking about a thing, you know, bread eaten in secret is delicious. Man, I stole some cookies when I was a kid and they were sweet. And we we have that. We carry that all the way into our adult life in many, many ways. So I I think Christians should be the most intense about the privacy of the marriage bed the privacy of the home in certain ways, but also be incredibly transparent and open and willing to be audited in ways that would make unbelievers really uncomfortable. You know, I preached years ago on Psalm 98, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. One of the most discouraging things about all these Christians, leaders hiding everything, is that I think it shows that they don't believe in repentance. And so then you have to ask the question, if if we try to hide the very things that should be audited, as you're, you're talking about, mm-hmm. what do we actually believe about sanctification and about the ongoing nature of original sin being a battle with Christians after they have been regenerated. You know, in other words, reform- sanctification means turning in a blank test. We didn't get any answers wrong. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking to David today, I told you earlier, and he was saying that the one sin that is absolutely the worst sin in the Reformed world now, and evangelicalism, is the sin of saying to somebody, you lied. And yet you don't begin to do pastoral care until you understand the necessity of saying that to people. You you lied. That's not true. Yeah, that's right. That's not true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't just... Sometimes you do. With bodacious men, you have to say, you lied. You, you don't say that to women. You, you try to say, it's not true, or aren't you fudging it a little bit, or, well, you're leaving out something. Well, you know, the cruelest lies are always told in silence. You know, there are ways of saying it. But what does it mean? You know, you're talking about audit. We should be willing to be audited. And it makes me think one of the texts that we're requiring in this pastoral care class is uh, Scott Manish's uh, uh, The Company of Pastors. It's, it's, a, it's a superb book, although <laughs> it's... It's probably a quarter footnote, so you have to be prepared for the fact that he's writing as a scholar. But he documents the relationship between the pastors in Calvin's time and after Calvin's time in Geneva, where Calvin was. And they had a company of pastors. They'd get together, and they would confess their sins regularly. And it's so liberating to read about it. I mean, I'll just give you two examples. You talk about an audit. We should be willing to be audited. Well, the pastors audited each other. 
And so anyhow, they audited, and there are two sins that were dealt with firmly. One sin was this dude who all the young men just thought he was wonderful. He was probably preaching on Christian nationalism and probably had a big weird beard. Yeah, big, big beard, and I don't know, whatever's cool. That's what he had. And he preached in a way that was really flashy. And the pastors rebuked him. And the pastors said, stop it. Well, the other one was a pastor that that patted his servant girl in the house on her behind. So they they rebuked him and sent him out of the city to a country parish because of that. <laughs> and so that gives an idea. I mean, the sins that were dealt with by them lovingly, firmly, you know, so I love your comment about an audit. Do you have anything more to say about it? Wait, I know what to ask you. How does an audit differ from an accountability group? <laughs> well, there, there are a few things. Um, first, if I choose the time and place, it's not an audit. The IRS does not uh, invite me to schedule an audit. If they decide that my business or my personal finances are being audited, they show up and they tell me about it. And then I am producing records. I am opening the filing cabinets. I am plugging in the external hard drives. I am having to provide them with the receipts and the documentation and the proof of expenses and the dates and times and the accounts and all that stuff. Um, So in a sense, this is the same way that as a young man in a church confessing sin, you know, you know which man to confess which Mm -hmm. sin to who's going to cut you the most slack for that sin. And that might be because that's the sin he was in when he was younger. It might be because that's a sin that his son, who's your age, struggles with. And he's either, he's very tender toward it or he has a bad conscience about it because he did not discipline his son well about it. But the, the mutual accountability group where I say, I suck, and you say, I suck, and we all say, I guess we all suck. Let's meet together next that, week. We'll all still suck. The one thing I know about somebody saying I need to be held accountable is that they, ref- they will refuse to be held accountable. Now, I don't want to be a cynic about it, but this is after decades of ministry. Yeah. What, what that often means is I want to have your permission to use convenient voluntary disclosures on my part, to you, be a tool that assuages my conscience. I think you've said that exactly right. Yep. And what I actually like about a lot of our modern technology is you can set up audit by default. I actually read, uh, it was in Slate Magazine, and I always I check in on Slate Magazine regularly because it's worth reading opposition research even mm-hmm. when it's junk. Mm-hmm. Um, And Slate is usually junk. But there was a particular thing, and the article was about um, why are all these evangelical men using a a computer program called Covenant Eyes? Mm -hmm. And the the person writing the article, I don't recall if the author was a man or a woman, uh, was basically saying, you know, 
all these men are repressed perverts and they've got this sort of mutual conspiracy to like hold each other accountable. But the fact that they all feel compelled to participate in this just shows that American evangelicals have an absolute complex about sex. And the reality that you would voluntarily put not some, but all of your browsing information at a place where the people who have agreed to help you can look at it at any time without you even knowing they've checked it means I don't have a hard conversation if I feel like it and I bring it up. It means that the records are public. Mm -hmm. Just the records are public in a sense. And that is, there was an amazing short story that I read and it was, I think in the Atlantic a number of years ago and it's set in a future, a couple of years in the future and some hacker group, very similar to how there was the big Ashley Madison leak and hundreds of thousands of people had their names and contact information exposed as having had accounts on Ashley Madison, which was a dating and hookup site specifically targeted toward encouraging adultery. It was, it was for married people to have a fling. Having an account on that website was inexcusable. It's one thing to say, well, yeah, I have a Twitter account and I talk about finance or history or whatever on Twitter. And I understand there's all kinds of porn on Twitter, but I'm there for the history discussions. Well, that's true of almost every major platform. Mm-hmm. Twitter's terms of use specifically allow explicit contact. Instagram doesn't. Facebook doesn't. But it's still there. If you go looking for it, you could always find it. None of those places are sanitized. But the idea that dumping all these people's data put them in a spotlight at a time and place not of their choosing, and then they had to reckon with the consequences mm-hmm. of having done that thing in the past. In this short story, some hacker group uh, figures out a way to dump everybody's browser histories. Just everybody's. <laughs> and they're publicly searchable like WikiLeaks. And marriages implode, companies fold, politicians' careers, and all this wild, wild stuff happens. And the the main character in the story is this young lady whose boyfriend leaves her because he finds out so many things about her that just disturb him, that he just breaks the relationship off and she's grieving this. But it was, it was the sum of all of her actions up to that point and all the things that she'd said and mm-hmm. done, which were revealed in an instant mm-hmm. without her having any ability to moderate them mm-hmm. or contextualize them. And that would be such a tectonic shift. Um, any of us, if our entire life as a snapshot could just be put up on a projector, it would be a horrible admixture. There would be things in there that were good that we'd never understood or appreciated or for, we'd forgotten that even happened. And there would be many, many things in there that would be awful. Yeah, and I want to say as a warning to those of you listening to this, that as you get older, you will not sleep as well as you have the rest of your life. And when you're in bed, what will assault you is your sins of your lifetime. 
And yes, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in the blood of Jesus, cleansing us from all sin. But before we started recording this, we were talking about secret sins. And just remember, you know, what it says in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs uh, 6 can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And, you know, we need to remember that there are consequences to giving our eyes to naked flesh. And we might think we have it under control because it's just the eyes. But earlier, before you got here, I was reading from uh, Richard Baxter's directory where he examines the eyes, Aaron Prelock sent it to me because um, he's going to teach one of our class sessions of pastoral care. And uh, Baxter talking about the danger of simple looks. I would almost say it's equally dangerous for us to see cleavage in a passing picture on the internet as it is pornography. You don't have to see nakedness. You can just dwell on body form. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And we have to take seriously this issue of our eyes. Yeah. The last point I was going to make about that was uh, when you said you, you won't sleep as well. There are two solutions to that. Repentance or Ambien. And our, our culture is all in on Ambien. Give me the drugs and let me forget. Oh, yeah, many times I lie awake I, at night. I'm just and, horrified by what it indicates about my heart. Yeah. You break a leg, and that bone can be set. And it may heal and never be the same again. Or you could just leave it broken and just hit that person with morphine over and over and over. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But I think that's what it means to go to a Grace Presbyterian church. I think it's leaving all the bones broken and just using grace as the ambient. Hmm. You never confess. You're never confronted. You're never disciplined. And you just turn up the drip. Yeah, the law of God is never preached. And that's why I'm so concerned about, you know, books like Gentle and Lowly and all this stuff, because our consciences need to be awakened by the law in order to be sanctified. It's not, the law isn't done when it leads us to Christ, but, you know, it's not even a schoolmaster in Presbyterian churches anymore. We don't even believe in preaching the law for the regeneration of souls, mm -hmm. but certainly not when it comes to sanctification. Um, so anyhow, I think you're right about what you said about those accountability groups and very wise as we come to an end. I, I do want people to believe in repentance and forgiveness. Yeah. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus preached when he preached the coming of the kingdom of God. It wasn't that Christian nationalism would finally get rid of the Romans. Yeah. You know, it was that 
God would have his people return to him in humility. Yeah, we need that. You mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird earlier. Do you remember Mrs. Henry Lafayette DuBose? Yeah, she was in that play. It's my wife's favorite book. I, it's, it's one of my favorites. I, I loved it when I first read it, and I've reread it many times. Yeah. She's an elderly neighbor of the Finches, and Jem gets sent over. To, he takes a stick and lops off all the heads of her flowers in the front yeah, yard, and yeah, he gets punished yeah, yeah. by being sent to read to her. And what they don't realize until after she passes away is that she's been using that reading time to kick her morphine habit because she gets a morphine shot every day. And she's been having Jem stay and read longer and longer and longer each day. And she's delaying taking her morphine. And when she passes away, Atticus said she was the bravest lady he ever knew. That she made up her mind that she was going to die free and clear of that. And she did. She got off the morphine. She did not want to die anesthetized. And you, I mean, as a kid, I read it and that, that didn't connect to me at all. You read that and you're like, huh, I guess that's good. I could totally understand more now and I will understand more as I get older how seductive the anesthetics are. All the anesthetics for all the different kinds of pain. So, well, on that note, thank you, Tim. It's been good to talk to you. Good night. Love talking to you. Good night. Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.